Welcome to UIDP Conversations, where we have candid discussions about partnership and collaboration across academia, industry, and government. I'm Sandy Maul with UIDP. At UIDP Connect 2020, we listened in on a great conversation between Muinat Bell, Assistant Professor and Pulse Lab Director at Johns Hopkins University, and Charles Johnson Bay, Senior Vice President for Booz Allen Hamilton. The topic is the digital battle space and the need for industry and academic partnership for emerging technologies, and we've excerpted it here. So take a listen to this UIDP conversation. Now it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker, Charles Johnson Bay. CJ is a leader in global organizational change for Booz Allen's commercial and defense clients. He has more than 25 years of engineering experience spanning cyber resilience, signal processing, system architecture, prototyping, and hardware. Prior to joining Booz Allen, he was a research engineer at Corning and Motorola Corporate Research Labs and taught electrical engineering at Morgan State University. He, was also, he has also worked at Lockheed Martin Corporation for 17 years, where he galvanized the company's cyber resources and led research and development activities with organizations including Oak Ridge National Laboratory, Microsoft Research, and the GE Global Research Center. CJ serves on the Whiting School of Engineering Advisory Board and the Electrical and Computer Engineering Advisory Committee, both at Johns Hopkins University. He is also on the Cybersecurity Institute Advisory Board for the Community College of Baltimore County. He earned master's and doctoral degrees in electrical engineering from the University of Delaware and a bachelor's degree in electrical and computer engineering from Johns Hopkins University. So CJ, I have heard you talk about the nature of warfare evolving and that you believe warfare in the coming century will be defined as a digital battle space. What exactly is a digital battle space? All right, well, thank you. And it's certainly my pleasure to be here and uh, to, you know, to share this information and also just to, to hang out with you a little more and answer these questions. So the digital battle space, that's an emerging, that's an emerging multi-dimensional. And when I mean by multi-dimensional, I'm talking about time, physical space, the electromagnetic spectrum, et cetera. So it's a multi-dimension theater, which uh, operations are coordinated across all the domains from land, sea, air, space, and cyber. And that information, it's that information that's the primary discriminator. So in the digital battle space, we devote as much thought and energy to the information itself so that we can enable fast and effective decision-making. And so warfare itself has, has always been as much about the information and the equipment, right? We want to know as much about our adversary so that we can have the advantage and have the adversary know as little as possible about us so that we can stay out of harm's way. And this is even more true in the near future where battles are increasingly going to be in the digital realm, and that includes cyber and autonomous systems. So yet, while having the most advanced hardware is absolutely critical, it won't help us win the digital battle space unless we can derive the full value of the data that the hardware is receiving, creating, and exchanging. Well, that's very interesting. Thank you for explaining that. So now if we step back from the specifications of the digital battle space for a moment and talk about the role universities play in this new world, how has R&D changed over time? Like what exactly does the emerging focus on the digital battle space mean to the world of academia where I come from? 
Yeah, so that's a, certainly a good question. And I think the short answer up front is that the universities will be positioned to play a much larger role than they ever had before. And I'm going to explain uh, why I think about it this way. And so one of the chief characteristics of the digital battle space is not who has the edge this year or even this month, but this minute. So we have to be able to continuously and seamlessly modernize. And for decades, the DOD has played an active role in setting the tech agenda and leading where technologies were to take the country. However, the truth is, is that today the U.S. defense community no longer has the power that it once did to shape the development arc of military technology. So according to a recent congressional research study, in 1960, the U.S. Defense Department alone accounted for 36% of the total global R&D spending, both military and non-military. But by 2016, the combination of reduced federal spending on R&D and increased spending by other nations had, other nations had driven the DOD slice down to 3.7% of global R&D. And during that same period, the U.S. share of global R&D fell uh, to 28%, and the federal government share of the total U.S. R&D fell from 65% to 24%. So this decline resulted primarily from more rapid increases in R&D spending from other nations, both public and private, and partially from increases in U.S. business R&D and federal non-defense R&D. So at the same time, the commercial businesses' share of R&D spending more than doubled from 33% to 67%. So I know I've thrown a lot of numbers out there, but, I, but what I want to drive home is this, is that the starkness of these numbers make one point. The DOD no longer gets to determine which technologies will shape the future of warfare. That determination is really now in the hands of places like universities. So everyone on this virtual conference will be a setting uh, in the place where they can set the future direction of warfare based on the applied and basic research that they will all be doing. And in some ways, it's the ultimate crowdsourcing of solutions. So that is why we need to push and drive the DOD, the National Science Foundation, the NTIA, and other agencies to establish funding to focus and drive success through academia. This would help focus U.S. universities on issues critical to the U.S., as well as provide a workforce base that may want to continue these efforts in industry, academia, or the federal government after graduation. And so now I wonder what role do you see the DOD having given those numbers that you presented in R&D going forward? So the DOD can and will still make bets in key technologies, but these bets are tiny compared to the magnitude of technological forces that are incurring outside the purview of the Pentagon. So as a result, the fundamental challenge that defense leaders face today is not picking winners. And I'm going to say that again, that their challenge of the defense leaders today is not in picking winners, but accurately seeing global technology trends and being able to translate and adapt. That's going to be the key. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, as someone who does research, in healthcare, I can't help but wonder what are your thoughts on any possible connections between the digital battle space that you've just defined and innovations in healthcare? So, you know, <laughs> coming from Hopkins, I knew that you were going to find a way to weave in healthcare, right? <laughs> but, that's, <laughs> but that's a good thing because these things really are related, right? Because when you look at 
the same advanced technologies which will enable the digital battle space, it all dovetail, in my opinion, into health. And maybe because both industries share an exacting need for precision and accuracy in a clouded and you know, utterly ambiguous data space. So I'm gonna bring this a little closer to home to you. You know, in your work, you develop theories, models, simulations that investigate advanced beam forming techniques so that you can help improve ultrasonic and photoacoustic image quality. And the reason why that's needed is because, you know, it's, it's hard to do the diagnostics that you need to do without the clear data. So, so you need to improve the image quality and, and you know this better than anybody, right? So that people can help make those decisions. And so one of the, so that's one area. Another area is artificial intelligence. That's another good example where battlefield decisions are never black and white, right? It's called the fog of war and neither is interpreting symptoms to identify which type of illnesses that a person has. And that data is equally uncontrolled and from an algorithmic perspective, it's very messy. And I'll give one more example, uh, biometrics, right? For the military, biometrics can provide a level of access control, of sensing bad actors, often when individuals don't wanna be known. And it's equally useful, I will say, in a public health scenario or an emergency outbreak, and vaccine tracing, you know, that's something that, that may be coming up in, in, the, in the world's near future. And in those conditions where uh, individuals can't accurately be known, you know, we may have people in remote villages or non-traditional addresses or may not have an ID. So even in mass casualty scenarios, how do you handle all this data at once and make sense out of it? And I know at Booth, where I work, we have a forensic ID device that's a good example of a solution in this space. So I guess to, to, um, to sort of bring my long-winded uh, answer home, I think one of the things that I think is also just the connection between the innovation that's needed in the digital battle space and in the healthcare, I think they share four critical characteristics. One is open and connected, right? Because being having open architectures and open data platforms and open APIs, that helps bring together and integrate data and make devices interoperable and make it plug and play. Cause we don't have no, there's no one place where you can go where you have all the smart people over here or the one place you can go and they've got all the equipment you need. It's not all in one place. People are developing these things, you know, around the world. And so how do we make these things work together? So open and connected, I think is a big enabler. Another thing is just being smart, right? Which, you know, we're using machine learning and different forms of artificial intelligence that's trained continuously so that we can refine the combination of data and science and expertise on a highly specific mission so that we can develop the domain knowledge that we need and can provide operators with the right information, being their operators are operators in the warfighter or operators in the, uh, in the healthcare field so that they can make the right time, take the right decision at the right time and make it fast. And then also just sort of processing at the edge, right? And being able to maximize the role of, of edge computing. So you have a distributed network and infrastructure approach that enables data to be processed and analyzed closer to its source. So if we can do that, if we can, can do that in both places, that helps the quality of the results. It helps speed up the, uh, the decision-making, but also helps you trust. So I know one of the examples I always use is that you know, it's good to know the, the mega millions numbers, 
before they're picked, right? Anybody can know them after they're picked. That data isn't, you know, much value, you know, after it's picked. But if we know it before, then we can take action. And then the last thing I'll talk about, because I, I really would love to have some uh, Q&A from the audience, is just having things resilient and secure. You know, when you have open platforms and you're dealing with things like machine learning and artificial intelligence and edge processing and networks, we, we need to be able to have an, the advantage to make sure that that what we're trying to do, that mission, is resilient. That if we're starting off to do something, that we finish it, right? That we don't let, you know, adversaries, be it jamming or be it, you know, messy data, stop us from doing what we need to do. But make sure that it's resilient, that it's secure, that you can protect people's information, valuable information, but also make sure that people that need it have it at hand so they can provide the solutions that's needed. So. Wow, that's a, that was my long-winded answer. That's a long, you know, and it shows the the breadth and depth of connection that there is between this digital battle space and innovations in healthcare, from you know, open and connected systems to machine learning to the things I'm doing in my lab and the things that we care about now in the world, especially with COVID and everything, with vaccines and biometrics. So, you know, thank you for sharing that connection and bringing it home for. For me and for everyone who's listening, can you help us understand better what this whole digital battle space means in terms of a focus for the future? So, you know, when envisioning how technology is likely to change the future of warfare in this emergent digital battle space, it's in the, 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 the information-based elements, right? The sensors, the data processing, the networking, the command and control, the targeting, the decision-making, all that is likely to be the most consequential for achieving the military advantage through our over through overmatch, right? And so while most strategists and technicians would agree with this idea, most of the focus so far has been on the hardware, right? Developing sort of these increasingly sophisticated device sensors and these big chips and planes and, and drones and all of that. But recent experience really has shown that the most advanced hardware even though it's very critical, no, you know, no doubt about that. It won't guarantee mission success, as I alluded to earlier, in this new environment, unless we uh, have the full value of the data and really understand what it means and, and making sure that we can unlock, right, the, the information that's there. So in addition, uh, although the DOD budget is not directly impacted by the COVID crisis, it seems very likely that cuts are coming. And uh, these reductions may be an opportunity for the DOD to make needed changes and reforms, but only if they can be executed thoughtfully and appropriately. And so recommendation, recommendations I have um, to start planning and analysis and process, that's where I'd go, Phil. What's the next great challenge in dealing with data? So, you know, it's been a, a catchphrase of, you know, big data, big data, people have been talking about that. but. I think uh, certainly data science and data analytics has its place because it's one thing to have a whole bunch of data coming through, but how do you make sense of it and how do you make sense of it in time? I can't stress enough that speed is important, right? And if you're talking from a military standpoint, speed could equal life, right? So if we can get the, the, the data analytics going and get the the get it to a point where people can make decisions, where the leaders can make decisions where they need to make it, or even still bringing it to the healthcare piece, where the physicians, the doctors, the researchers can make good decisions quicker, 
that's the thing that's going to make the difference. So I, I think it's that data analytics, data science is really a place to play. People talk about, you know, artificial intelligence. You know, that, that certainly has a role, but, but we certainly need to be able to analyze and make sense out of this as quickly as possible. Okay, here's an, another interesting perspective that changes the direction a little bit. How do you balance the need for bringing in talent from abroad and balance that against national security concerns? Yeah, um, so that's a, that's, a, that's a good question. So, so certainly we're in a place from an academic standpoint where you know, we share information worldwide, right? We have, so I'm a double E, so you know, we have the IEEE and you know, different places where we can share information across the globe. But certainly in certain instances, there are things that need to, uh, that we don't need to share for, for certain reasons. And in that sense, I think I'm going to actually I'm going to drive home a diversity and inclusion point that the United States needs to face itself, because we need all kids in all playgrounds, right? Not just some playgrounds, not just some kids. But when you look at the fact that to get a security clearance, you have to be a U.S. citizen. And so we need those kids uh, to help us, to help this country uh, go to help, I will tell you, if you have a security clearance, uh, you are not unemployed. It's zero percent unemployment. Actually, the thing I used to say was it's like negative unemployment. I'm sure that there's some people who are no longer with us that still getting a check beyond the grave because they had a clearance. But I will say that that we need all the kids in all the playgrounds, and I think that this is a certainly a call for the United States to look at its citizens and and treat them all with respect and say, hey, we need them because. If we're not giving um, clearances and such to folks that are non-U.S. citizens, then we daggone sure better make sure that all the folks that can have a clearance and can help us as uh, we go forward in the future to solve these problems that and need the clearances in order to get to the work, right, and understand what the work is, we need everybody. So we need people from East Baltimore like me to continue to come up and do that. All the kids from the playgrounds in East Baltimore and Detroit and all those areas, we, we need them all. We need everybody, we need everybody. Certainly we do. And here's another one about uh, needing everyone, but also maintaining the US advantage, so to speak. So it seems that the, the digital battle space is more prone to asymmetric warfare than traditional warfare with tanks, ships, and planes. First, is that perception correct? And then if so, what yeah. can we do to maintain the US advantage from that perspective? Yeah, so, you know, we, we talk about kinetic weapons, right? So things that go boom, so things, you know, kinetic weapons, you know, things go boom. I think in, you know, uh, if you've seen the, like the play Hamilton, you talk about like the first shot of the war, things like that. I think the first shot of, uh, of the wars are really going to be, are going to be in that electromagnetic space, in that cyberspace, right? It's not, it's not going to necessarily be, uh, shot fired. I think wars are going to be fought and won without a bullet being fired in several instances. So again, I think in order to maintain um, some U.S. superiority and uh, some overmatch, then we need to make sure that the people who are, we need to encourage more and more uh, people to do this work, right, to be involved. I think that's one of the reasons why I'm really happy to be speaking during this forum. And the fact remains is that and we need people to get clearances and we need people to help. Now, you don't need a clearance to do everything, but 
but certainly there's a lot of work where clearances are needed and and we need that. That's the thing that's going to help you United States maintain its edge um you know in the digital battle space. No question about that. Thank you to Mui Bell and Charles Johnson Bay for that great conversation. UIDP supports professionals at top-tier innovation companies and world-class universities build better partnerships. Learn more at uidp.org.